Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you and thanks for tuning in. This is Beyond Governance at 101.9 High FM. Yours truly is Nimrod Mbele. I'm delighted to share this space and time with you as always as we survive the cold weather, load shedding, high petrol costs, which certainly drive inflation to a point where our food basket is dwindling. As if it's not enough that we are living in a very unequal society with unemployment rates reaching almost 40%. We are truly going through social upheavals, if not mayhem, which require decisive leadership across the board. In the same token, the tussle between the Minister of Energy and, and the Minister of Enterprises does not inspire confidence as ordinary people continue to suffer in instances where there is no sense of cohesion, sense of unity, and sense of direction amidst energy crisis. Having said that, we need to be hopeful as the country will pull through. The cold weather is still, still upon us, which means homeless people are still exposed. I implore you, as I've always done in the past, that let's reach out to the needy by donating blankets, clothes, and food parcels as this makes a difference to a very desperate situation which they encounter on a daily basis. In this show, we proud ourselves by bringing you the beloved listener, thought leaders who sharpen our horizon and perspective by illuminating some of the blind spots and hopefully give you insights on how to view issues and best and, and best address them. Before we kick off the show today, let's do what is right, acknowledge our technical producer, without whom the show will not uh, be as pleasant as it should be. Vusi Masina, on that note, thank you very much, my brother, for a job well done. The thrust of our conversation today, as I'm joined by Sol Molod, who is an executive at Brand Hill Africa. Guess what? He has written another book. We are going to talk about this in his book, which is entitled Deconstructing Brand Africa, a practitioner perspective. I'm quite excited to get to know from him as to what really inspired him uh, to write this book. Before we go to that, let's, let's welcome Brasol. Brasol, once again, welcome to Beyond Governance. Good morning, Dr. Mbele, your technical team. Also, good morning to your listeners. Just to kick off, I've already introduced the new book, which is titled Deconstructing or Constructing Brand Africa, a Practical Perspective. Take us through your thinking process in crafting the title, as, it's, as it is loaded and interesting at the same time. Basically, I'm a former diplomat. The book is drawing on my experience from diplomacy, having served as South Africa's consul general to Milan, where I was driving economic diplomacy in the whole of northern Italy, which is the economic hub of that capital. And for me then, whilst before my diplomatic posting, I theorized about globalization and its impact on Africa. I experienced that practically as I engaged with investors and potential investors who could be interested in not only South Africa, but Africa as a whole. So the advent of globalization, which is characterized by hyper-competition for foreign direct investment and tourism, and access to and dominance in the markets by one's products, uh, has catapulted economic diplomacy to the center of international relations. Then I asked the question, how can Africa and her countries claim their stake in the global marketplace? My book endeavors through its autonomous and yet interdependent chapters 
to suggest uncompromisingly so perhaps if I was to say it without being prescriptive. Practical solutions grounded in time-tested and tried global theoretical formulations, but contextualizing them within a pan-African epistemological framework for relevance and suitability to the continental realities that Africa is facing. It is important to note that with this book, I'm hoping to contribute to efforts to change the narrative on brand Africa and to help her reclaim her original position as the cradle of civilization, whose essence was best expressed by Pliny the Elder uh, during the first century uh, after the birth of Christ, who said that ex Africa semper aliquid novi. Uh, this basically means out of Africa, something always freshly new comes up. But yet we do know that after the 1884-1885 uh, Berlin Conference, which is dubbed the Scramble for Africa, then a narrative emerged that described Africa as a dark continent. And this was crystallized by Joseph Conrad in his seminal work, The Heart of Darkness. Basically, that gave European powers the right to dissect Africa into these numerous countries that we have today. We are counting 55 AU member states. And then I'm saying that resulted in colonialism. And yes, we know... Uh, in 1906, Pixley Kaisa Kaseme began a movement to change this narrative of Africa being a dark continent when he spoke about the regeneration of Africa. This was at his graduation speech at Cambridge, which the speech that won him an award as the best student speech for that year. And that also then led to the emergence of national liberation movements across the continent, starting with the South African National Native Congress, which was later renamed the African National Congress that we, we know today. Now, the book basically says, with globalization, countries are competing for tourism, they are competing for direct foreign investment. And then beyond that, you have to brand position your products in such a way that the foreign markets may find it appealing. So this book looks at the period, the last two years, the period in which I have been working through my group, Brand Healer Africa, to support made in Africa service and product brands so that they could be able to compete with brands that are dumped onto the continent, but also repositioning Africa and her countries as viable destinations for trade and investment. Draws on various uh, theories which are time-tested on the concept of nation branding. Hold on to the thought. I think you're making a number of pertinent issues which we need to uh, dissect them in the most granular fashion. Before you do that, let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. I'm joined by Sol Molobu, who's an executive at Brand Hill Africa, who has written a brand new book called The Deconstructing Brand Africa from a Practitioner's Perspective. 
Before we took that short break, Saul was giving us the chronological thinking which led to the publication of the book. And he suggests that in his book, his approach is very practical and grounded in the Pan-African views with a view or with an aim of changing the broader narrative of the continent being a dark continent. And it's quite interesting how he juxtaposed the emergence of Africa and refer back to the narrative which preceded colonialism, which has been quite positive, unfortunately, due to colonial era in the 18th century has sort of led to the scramble of Africa, wherein we have had 55 countries that we see now today. Having set the seed, let's take a step back. One of the issues that could only, that you have correctly pointed out, that all these 55 states are obviously competing for investments internally and, and internationally. So for any investments to come through in your book, what are sort of practical strategies that you are suggesting that leaders need to think about or apply so that the stability of the continent is being achieved? Why I'm asking this question, we all know that economies are driven by the private sector at the back of a stable democratic system. Take us through some of the practical solutions that you are suggesting which the leaders in the continent, based on your vast experience, needs to think about, implement. In fact, statistics are very depressing. I will tell you for the year 2021, according to the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD, Africa has only scored 5.2% of global FDI, of foreign direct investment. And it was only an increase of 1.1% from last year's uh, 4.1%. This is extremely worrying. But then what we need to do as a continent, in fact, it was mentioned by the National Planning Commission in South Africa in their National Development Plan. That began to say to our Department of International Relations and Cooperation, show us the money. Basically, they were saying, justify to us why we have to spend so much money investing in our diplomatic missions abroad and at the same time not being able to show the value that we are deriving from such an investment. So basically, the concept of return on investment is no longer akin only to the private sector, but also in the public sector. Here at home, even the Batupele principles talk about uh, about value for money, that every cent that you are spending at the public sector, you should be able to show the value that you have derived from that. Now, the National Development Plan therefore called for reimagination and the rationalization of our diplomatic missions. And they then said each and every mission should be able to justify its existence. And that's why we saw the South African government in the past two years, especially up until December last year, closing up to 14 diplomatic missions because they were then looking at what value are they deriving from all these uh, diplomatic missions located all over the world. But when you look at the concept of international relations, because we are competing for tourism and foreign direct investment and for our 
products to enter into foreign markets. Then we realize that there's an emergence of a new stream of international relations in diplomacy. And this was public uh, diplomacy, which also encompasses economic diplomacy, where we are saying international relations is no longer about state-to-state relations inculcation, but it should be about not just the state, but also non-state actors, such as the private sector, as carriers and drivers of a country's foreign policy, to be engaged so that they can engage with their counterparts in other countries. So therefore, all diplomatic missions right now, whether South Africa's or Africa's or diplomatic missions of any other country, have to prioritize economic diplomacy. And yes, we do know that governments do not drive economic growth. Economic growth is driven by the private sector. All government has to do is to create an environment conducive for investors to put their money in a particular country or project so that ultimately when they grow, they are able to pay their taxes and therefore it means then the fiscus will be healthy. Then practically all diplomatic missions have to speak to the private sector in their countries and promote those private sector entities in their host countries so that they'll be able to attract and impress upon potential investors in their host countries so that they could be interested in their country as a destination for their investments. This is very important because then it speaks to strengthening the relationship between the private sector at individual entrepreneur level, but also at corporate and chamber level, where our diplomatic missions should be promoting all these entities in their host countries because investors from abroad are no longer interested in just one talking about the beauty of their country. They are interested in a diplomatic mission presenting packaged bankable projects which are costed and you go to potential investors to say, here's this project, it requires this much, please come on board as an investor or as a lender. If I can come in then, look, again, you raise another pertinent and issues which I think is worthy of interrogating slightly differently or if not further. It has been established that the intra-Africa trade is lower than Europe for a number of reasons that you have eloquently alluded to. One of the biggest challenges that is a full conclusion or well-known in an African continent is that the majority, overwhelming majority of our economies are made of small enterprises and in informal businesses which by any stretch of your imagination, if those were to be migrated into a formal stream, that's where we are likely to, to see a difference. I get the argument of foreign direct investment, which in my view has been thrown around as a panacea, and which I doubt if it's a panacea. So the basics for me and those that have a little bit of interest in this particular sector would argue very strongly that would it not be useful for us to look at the small businesses first, Ensure that small businesses, the infrastructures are ready and that we're given necessary support and migrate as, as many informal businesses or small businesses to the mainstream. In your book, I know you do touch on this. Can you just share your perspective? Because this is at the heart of economic development in the continent. 
we have to adopt an integrated approach when we develop solutions that will impact on our economies. The reason why we have to strive to attract as much foreign direct investment as possible is that if you look at Africa as a whole, one, we lack infrastructure. Infrastructure in terms of rail and road development, there isn't interconnectivity between African countries, including even your air transport, where if you were to go to a country such as Niger, flying from South Africa, you have to first fly to Paris or to Dubai or to London to get a connecting flight, which will uh, fly you back into Niger. It's not just about challenges of passenger transport, but also cargo that it impacts on our exports. Foreign direct investment is critical for that because we also have to take into consideration that our national governments do not have resources that can afford them to be able to develop the required infrastructure for economic growth. That's why if you look at many African countries, they owe your Bretton Woods institutions such as the World Bank, and International Monetary Fund, so much money. If you look at their debt in relation to their GDP, that ratio is very, very worrying. Then you also have smaller uh, countries like Lesotho and Swaziland, which rely to a large extent on revenue generated by the Southern African Custom Union, and they also rely on DUNA funding. And DUNA funding, we know that it does not necessarily go into entrepreneurship development. So we need foreign investors to be looking at all these big projects, and out of that, then our SMMEs will subcontract to access opportunities that will be possible for them to be able to embark upon. Therefore, that will result in supplier development. Therefore, our small and medium enterprises are growing. Now, the other problem in Africa is the tariffs. If you're a small and medium enterprise, you want to export to another country on the continent without lack of infrastructure or inadequate infrastructure uh, for your goods to be able to reach those African countries, then you are also slept with very heavy tariffs. And those tariffs make it impossible for you to compete on price with products produced in other countries. Because remember also, economies of scale, very, very crucial in this instance. You will be competing with products that are produced in cost-effectively in China. And as a result, you find yourself more expensive than products which are brought from other continents into Africa. This is where the criticality of the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement comes in, where it seeks to remove trade tariffs on up to 90% of the products produced and manufactured in Africa, and which impact negatively on small and medium enterprises sector, is that African countries are exporting raw commodities to other continents. And those commodities are beneficiated in other continents where they create jobs and they create opportunities for small and medium enterprises in those countries. And from there, Africa only imports beneficiated products. 
And then you look at intra-African trade that you spoke about. Before COVID, it was sitting at 18%. And last year, it came down to, to 14%. And I was saying, as Africa, we shouldn't allow this crisis to go to waste because China locked down and other European and American source markets are having closed their borders. It was an opportunity for us as Africans to begin to develop and manufacture our own products cost effectively so that we could be able to access African markets. Whilst international competition has been curtailed by the closing down of national borders. So this is the opportunity that we should be tapping into. But beyond that, and this is where the construct of, of Brand Africa comes in, we also need to invest sufficient resources into branding our products so that they could be palatable to our consumers. Tebe Ikalafeng annual survey, Brand Africa survey, has given us statistics that are extremely worrying. When he launched this annual brand survey in 2010, 34% of the top 100 most admired brands were African. And guess what? This year, that number has come down to 10%, meaning that African consumers are not coveting with made in Africa service and product brands. We need to invest sufficient resources into branding our services and products so that our people may begin to to see them as attractive. I strongly believe the listener is being given food for thought on some of the practical issues which any system needs to look at as a way of trying to resuscitate economies as it were. Let's take a break, we'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance and your host, Nimrod Mbele, joined by Sol Molobu, who's an executive at Brand Africa. Uh, we are dissecting his very rich book about deconstructing uh, Brand Africa from a, pra- uh, from a practitioner's perspective. Before we went to the break, one of the issues that I put to Saul, which he eloquently addressed, is the fact that in, in, in African economies, the majority of businesses are small businesses and informal businesses. And I put it to him that it is questionable to suggest or to assume that the foreign direct investment is a panacea because the, the basis has to be correct first and foremost in terms of addressing legislative requirements and making sure that all small businesses are able to trade. Uh, in his defense, he then said, look, we need to have an integrated approach. We can't have a monolithic approach in terms of economic development. You know, Saul gave us a thinking around infrastructure, uh, be it railroads and so on and so forth, which needs substantial capital, of which the downside of any investment in road or, or in any investment in infrastructure can lead to employability or employment opportunities of small businesses. And he also argued very strongly that the lack of resources by most of the African countries is a, is a dead level or is attributed to the dead level. Majority of African countries spend whatever mega resource they have servicing debt up to 80%, which goes without saying that when you spend almost eight, up to 80% of revenue servicing debt, there's very little for investment. 
You also brought in a very interesting point about the donor funding, which has a lot of conditions, which may not necessarily be driving or integrated to the national strategies for employment creation. And the other critical issue that you raised, which I cleared in my mind, is all point of tariffs, which makes it impossible for national products to compete with uh, the likes of China and so on and so forth, purely because the tariffs makes it difficult, unit cost on any item. So now raise the issue of how we need to brand our products and services, bearing in mind that the survey that is done by Tabby on annual basis suggests that some top brands were hovering around 4%, and last year we, we sort of uh, backslided to, uh, to 10%. Clearly, these are complex and complicated issues which called upon various African states to have a differentiated approach and programming that could address each of these issues. Having said that, first and foremost, you must acknowledge that your book does present huge challenges. And each of these issues that you make reference to, either lack of infrastructure, debt ratio to GDP, donor funding, tariffs, are very complex in the own right. And they require thought leaders who are progressive in their thinking. They also assume a lot of expertise. That's it. We know that the delivery of the continent from underdevelopment to a point where we could be seen as a developed uh, countries or even surpassing those bars. It has to do with skills and competencies. In your book, how do you address issues of skills, particularly in the fourth industrial revolution, as that could only be a factor? Are we, the question is, are we investing substantially in skills and competencies that could propel African economies to compete with Hong Kong, China, Taiwan, and so on and so forth? Your take on that, how is your book addressing those pertinent issues? Before I get into the issue of the fourth industrial revolution, let me give you a practical example on the challenges that are faced by small and medium enterprises in in South Africa. I have 34 years experience in global marketing, international relations, but my company was only registered in 2016. And then when I submit bid proposals for government departments, then they divorce my 34-year experience from the company itself. And they adjudicate me on the basis of having been in existence since 2016. And then I would respond to some of them to say, but the company is non-existent without Sol. The company as a juristic entity will need Sol with his experience to be able to execute this project. And they say to me, no, this is what the specifications are indicating that we should look at how old the company is and we allocate more points to that company. A company which is younger, even if the executives and the officials employed by that company have a combined experience over 100 years, that doesn't mean anything to the process. And for that reason, then, you have a company which is over 10 years old, which doesn't have as much capacity as this younger company. But according to the bid specifications, then that company, which is older, will still be allocated uh, more marks or points. I had a situation where 
one company which is much older than Brain Hill Africa was competing with me for the project. Then the project was allocated to them. Then that company came to me and said, we are subcontracting this job to you because we know you will be able to carry it out within the time frames provided. And because I'm desperate for cash, yes, I agreed to do that. This is how unfair the system is and un- unconducive to small and medium enterprise development in this country. It's different with the private sector. They look at my resume and they give me projects to work on. And I do that despite the fact that Brand Hill Africa was only registered in, in 2016. Coming back to your question, the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic has catapulted us into adopting digital communication tools. If you look at the statistics released by Simon Kemp every year, you will see that internet penetration in Africa is much better than what many people think. In fact, we are doing much better than even Southern Asian countries. You look at the numbers uh, from your cellular, mobile uh, phone companies, then you realize that, in fact, not only in South Africa, but across the continent, we are doing relatively okay. Yes, we still need to challenge these mobile service providers to get them to lower their data costs so that we could increase the rate of connectivity in rural areas where unemployment is quite right. So my book then says to especially your small and medium enterprises, adopt digital marketing platforms because they also transcend national borders. If you post anything on social media or on your website, you are able to reach people, not only consumers, not only in Africa, but across the world. And that should be able to broaden your market reach. So the book calls for that. And we are also saying, if you look at the research into media consumption trends in the past 10 years, you will realize that your traditional TV, the stats are going drastically down. Your traditional print magazines and newspapers have gone down by 50%, TV by 24%. And yet, if you look at digital media consumption uh, platforms, you realize that it is on the rise. And that's why today your smartphone serves as your office, serves as your entire life. Because once you have a smartphone with internet connection, then you are able to reach everyone anywhere in the world you so wishes to do. So we encourage particularly small and medium enterprises that do not have huge marketing budgets to invest in adopting digital marketing platforms so that they could be able to reach the broader consumer population, not only in South Africa, but across the entire continent. Well, thank you very much, Sol. I think that's a very useful insight that you've shared with us. I just want to go back to earlier point regarding the bid proposals, which are judged on the basis of the the, um, the years in which the company has been established, which, in your view, divorces the the owners, because the owners are actually driving. And, and I agree with you, and I've seen it in so many instances, where, because when you look at the, the drivers, the directors of a company, with when you combine their skills, 
experiences, they should have more points. But having said that, look, those are some of the issues that politics come into play, particularly when you have administrators who have not managed any businesses. It is difficult in as much as at the lower end, people are simply adhering to the rules of engagement, but the policy designers themselves, majority of them have not been exposed to businesses. It is hence we have such a limited and narrow scoping. And I agree with you, that just makes it even worse. That is why, you know, those who are supposedly having an upper hand based on the, the history of their registration without necessarily doing much, come back to your companies such as yours and say, look, can you help us? And again, you're quite correct. When you are desperate and financially constrained, you can't say no, even if you legitimately ought to have won that particular work because on your based on your pricing, based on your skills and so on and so forth. But these are some of the conversations that's need to change so that small businesses are able to compete on equal footing. The other point that I agree with that you sort of illuminated with, with the listeners is that we need to learn as much as possible from the COVID environment, as it were, by adopting digital marketing platform. As more and more businesses use those kinds of platforms, are able to reach global consumers, not only national, but global consumers, which is something that we have seen happening. And I agree with the fact that when you look at the traditional media trends, I mean, or traditional media platforms, TV, print, have, have dwindled significantly purely because of cost. So this is something that Africa and African countries, let alone businesses, can adopt to ensure that their products and services are being sold on a larger scale. On that note, let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. We are now literally gravitating towards the end of our show. I'm joined by Sol Molobi, who's an executive at the Brand Hill Africa. Sol has written a very interesting book uh, titled Deconstructing Brand Africa from a Perspective of, from a perspective of Practitioners. One of the biggest challenges, I mean, I suppose a question that a listener would argue or, or raise to yourself is given the complexities of issues that you've raised, 10 or so chapters, what would you consider as the low-hanging fruit in your chapter, which you can direct any thought leaders at the legislature level, but also at an executive level for them to consider? What would you consider those low-hanging fruit be in your book? The good thing about this book is that even though it's a theoretical guide, it is written accessibly, uh, yet eloquently decorated with bits and pieces of anecdotes in interspacing theory and practice of nation brand management. And also the chapters are not arranged chronologically. A reader will be free to move from any chapter depending on the topic that they are most interested in. Or they may also read one chapter after another according to the common themes these chapters will be addressing. For instance, if you are interested in destination marketing, then you will look at those chapters that are promoting tourism in South Africa and on the continent. The most important thing that I argue, especially on destination marketing, is that international tourists are no longer interested to some extent 
on visiting one country. They are interested in partaking regional tour packages. And I give an example. For instance, a visitor may visit Mapungubye in Limpopo, which is at the confluence of Zimbabwe and Botswana and South Africa. And it's an 11th century African kingdom. This person who is interested in our history, in archaeology, will then from Mapungube go into the Tulamela ruins, which are in the Kruger National Park, because when Mapungubia collapsed, uh, the community broke into two. One group went into Tulamela, another one crossed the Limpopo River into Zimbabwe to establish what was then known as the Great Zimbabwe in Masfingo district. Now, you go into Tulamela in the Kruger National Park, there's a border between South Africa and Mozambique and Zimbabwe called the the Giriondo border post within the Kruger National Park. Then you cross into Zimbabwe, you proceed to the Great Zimbabwe. You experience this ancient archaeology, and if you so desire, then you proceed to the northeastern part of Botswana, you visit the Domboshaba. Uh, ruins because when the Great Zimbabwe collapsed, the community proceeded up, migrated to into Botswana simply because they were interested. You remember, migration then was driven by access to resources, particularly water and security. So then they went up and established Domboshaba village which was next to the Zambezi River, but also Musiwatunya, the Victoria Falls. Then after the Domboshaba, then you can experience Musiwatunya or Victoria Falls from the Bulawayo side or from the Zambian side at the David Livingston Tourism Facility. Then you experience that. So this international tourist shall have covered South Africa Zimbabwe, Botswana, and Zambia. So tourists are interested in such sub-regional tour packages. Alternatively, from Tulamela, you cross through the Giriondo border post into, into Mozambique, northern part of Mozambique, the Shai Shai province. They have the most stunning beaches. And you also visit Limpopo River source within the Indian Ocean, where you experience a river forming within an ocean and you can see water zooming out and streaming into a river, which river becomes Limpopo River. The same experience, you can even get it in in Uganda within the Lake Victoria. You are able to see Nile River forming within the lake and you see a stream of water going out of the lake forming uh, what becomes Africa's longest river, which is Nile River. So you will find this. And if you are looking at um, the challenges and opportunities of small and medium enterprises, there are also chapters are speaking to that because globally in many advanced countries, you have small and medium enterprises constituting 60 to 65% of contributors to the GDP of their countries, and they are employment creators. That's why even our government here should be doing enough to support small and medium enterprises because they are real job creators. Which of the chapters, you know, you found it difficult to put up and which one you like most? Because I can tell from listening to you, you seem to have enjoyed 
the chapter that deals with art and culture, how you've eloquently illustrated how a tourist, descending tourist, wants to look at. There's no doubt in my mind, there's no doubt in the mind of the listener, um, that part seems to have been a very interesting piece from your end. Which other parts of the book you found difficult to write? The most important and most empowering chapters, I call them the Alpha and Omega of Brand Africa Management. The opening chapter um, looks at 40 variables that I developed as part of my research for a Master of Science in Global Marketing dissertation at the University of Liverpool. I then tabulated 40 variables. Then I went to Italian investors to say to them, tell me which of these 40 variables are the most important or relevant to you in deciding which location do you go to? And then they ranked all 40. And I took the same 40. I went to investment promotion agencies in Kenya, in South Africa, and in Mozambique. Then I said to them, please rank these uh, variables in terms of their importance to investors, because they are the agencies that are attracting investors into their country. We don't necessarily know what is important or relevant to investors. This is chapter one. The last chapter then says it develops variables on how do we position our products and services to foreign markets? What is important to foreign consumers? So these are the two most important chapters that investment and trade promotion agencies should be concentrating on. Moving forward, I mean, when are you launching your book? How do people access your book? The book will be published by end of July. And I would say people should visit our social media pages. We have Jumbo Africa online on all social media platforms. We have Brand Hill Africa on all social media platforms. And you have Sol Molobi on all social media platforms. We will also be accepting pre-orders and we'll be giving them the book at discounted prices, those who will be pre-ordering. And also visit our website, brandhillafrica.com and you have jumboafrica.online. You will be able to get information about this book, but also to say that are those especially interested in expanding into the continent. This is a book for them because through our Africa CEO Forum, which engages CEOs of economic development agencies across the continent. Quite fascinating indeed, quite fascinating indeed. We'll look forward to it. Um, as for me and the general listeners, I sincerely hope that there's some lessons we could all learn based on some of the issues that you've raised in the book. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. We're going to leave it here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, my good doctor. Lovely. There you go. That's uh, Sol Molobi giving us very interesting perspective on the book that he has recently written. And uh, we look forward to it. Let's call it uh, a day. Shalom. Beyond Governance was brought to you by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision making.